the word of God. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your holy word, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Be pleased this day to reveal yourself to us that we might come out of our sin and into the wonders of your love. For we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Our scripture text this morning is John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. It is written. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm, praying, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. When we began this sermon series a few weeks ago, I encouraged us to pay careful attention to the language in these chapters of John's gospel. And one of the words that comes to the forefront is the word love. It comes in like a downpour saturating these teachings on discipleship as Jesus turns his attention fully to his inner circle. I wanted to remind you of this as we come to this final chapter of John's in, in John's gospel in this discourse where we find one of the most intimate moments recorded in all of John's gospel because what we find here is a prayer. One of the richest, most intimate things we do together as God's people is pray. If prayer is to be real and not just for show, we lay ourselves bare when we pray. Our relationship with God is revealed as are our deepest desires, hurts, fears, and joys. Perhaps this is why so many of us are intimidated to pray out loud in a group setting, but we don't really know one another until we pray together. And many of you have experienced this truth in your small groups. You can sit and you can discuss the Bible for hours with one another, but it really isn't until you spend time with one another in prayer that you truly get a glimpse of each other's hearts. This is what I've heard from so many of you regarding your time in small groups together. Because you have spent time praying with one another, you have come to know one another in a deeply intimate way and praise the Lord for that. And that reality makes this chapter perhaps the most important chapter that we have covered as we are given here the sacred privilege of getting a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. Think about this. For as often as the gospel accounts record for us the frequency with which Jesus prays, we don't have many of those prayers recorded. This is one of the only ones, so we should pay careful attention here. And what does it reveal? Well, it reveals a lot of things. And we're currently going through a 12-week study on the Lord's Prayer in Sunday school, and perhaps you have noticed along the way that a lot more could be said about that short prayer. Just seven verses in Matthew's gospel, but it is more than we could ever cover in just 12 weeks. And here in John 17, we have a prayer that is 26 verses. 
which can be fairly easily divided into three major parts. First, Jesus prays for himself. Next, he prays for his disciples. And finally, he prays for all who will come to follow him in the ages to come. This, by the way, follows the same sort of structure as the prayer offered by the high priest as he prepared for his ministry on the Day of Atonement. And it's not insignificant that Jesus prays in this manner as he prepares for the great day of atonement. When he himself, the unblemished lamb of God, will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. This is not to say in any way that this is just some sort of ceremonial prayer or perfunctory prayer. It is deeply personal. Anyhow, within this threefold structure, there are a number of petitions which are somewhat difficult to count because, as you may notice, these petitions are all intertwined with one another. And as one scholar noted, the petitions are woven together in such a way that none can be removed without unraveling them all. In other words, even though this prayer can be divided into three parts, it isn't really a linear prayer. Jesus circles around adding perspective in layers of understanding as he cycles through his petitions. And all of that is to say that there is no way that we will come close this morning to covering this prayer in its entirety. We could do an entire sermon series on this prayer in and of itself. Indeed, we could spend the rest of our lives meditating on this prayer and uncovering its depth and its meaning and its purpose in our lives. And I encourage you to do just that. And we as the people of God should want to spend time pondering that which is important to Jesus. Praying that which he prays, learning to desire that which he desires. So what I want to do this morning, rather than trying to unwind this prayer and analyze it, is simply remember what we are encountering here. A prayer. It's a prayer offered by our Lord Jesus Christ in the moments before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. It's a prayer prayed as Jesus' work on earth comes to completion and as he prepares to leave his disciples and return to his heavenly throne at the right hand of God the Father, where he will reign in power and glory. It's a prayer prayed by Jesus, the Son of God, and offered to his heavenly father and as such it's a prayer that speaks to the deep things of God so we want to come to this prayer with great reverence and as we approach this prayer understanding that we have here a glimpse into Jesus's heart I want us to focus in on the central thrust of this prayer and what is it a revealing of the transcendent love of God shared with us, his people. That's what the whole prayer is about. It's about the reality that God is a God of love who in his grace and mercy loves us. And not in some sort of sentimental, hallmark, channel type of way. God truly loves us. 
in a way that we need to be loved, in a way that only he, the one true and living God, perfect in righteousness and holiness, can love us. So I want us to see this morning the ways in which God's love is revealed in this prayer. So first and foremost, first and foremost, this prayer helps us to see that God has desired to bring us into the love that is shared between the persons of the Holy Trinity. This prayer helps us to see that God has desired to bring us into the love that is shared between the persons of the Holy Trinity. As Jesus enters into this holy space of prayer, we see the intimacy which he shares with God, whom he calls on as his father, asking him to glorify his son. And what Jesus is asking God, his father, to do is to restore him to the splendor that he once shared with the father before the world began. In other words, he is asking that the self-emptying that came as a result of his incarnation be reversed. Even as Jesus revealed the glory of God through his earthly ministry, his heavenly glory had been laid aside in his condescension to earth. And Jesus now at the conclusion of his earthly ministry desires to reside once again with his heavenly father in the fullness of his glory. But notice that Jesus isn't simply praying that he alone be glorified. Instead, Jesus prays, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He prays for a mutual glorification. He desires that he would be glorified because when he is honored, so too is his father. So as Jesus the son goes about his work given to him by his father and receives glory as a result of this work, the son in turn glorifies the father whose will is accomplished in and through him. Therefore, even as Jesus is asking for the Father's help here to be successful in the task assigned to him by his Father. We are seeing a deep intimacy and interconnectedness between Jesus and his Father. And at the core of this intimacy and interconnectedness is a love that's shared between the Heavenly Father and his Son. We see in verse 2 that the Father, in his love for his Son, has been pleased to give his son preeminence over all things, authority over all flesh. And the son, in his love for his father, has submitted himself to his father's will. And although that is not made explicit in this prayer, this is what is being communicated nonetheless. And as we move through this prayer, we find this intimacy and interconnectedness rooted deeply in love being revealed again and again. We find that what is the Father's is the Son's, and what is the Son's has been given to him by the Father. So not only is there mutual glorification being prayed for here, but also a mutual possession that is being professed. It doesn't stop there, though. We also see a mutual indwelling between Father and Son. Jesus prays to his Father, who he says is in me and I in you now. All of this can make our heads begin to spin as we try to make sense out of it. But we don't want to miss all of these things that are being communicated to us about the relationship between God the Father 
and God the Son, Jesus Christ. We don't want them to get lost behind the petitions we can make sense of. Part of what is being communicated is an unashamed acknowledgement of Jesus' divinity. He is one with the Father and yet distinct in his person. And all of this can seem very confusing to us as we encounter the mystery of the inner being of the triune God. And we must be careful not to wander into places where angels fear to tread, trying to make sense out of this mystery. So our takeaway here should be very simple. We are seeing the depth of Jesus' relationship with his Father. We are getting a rare glimpse into the relationship shared within the Godhead. And while this is a profound mystery, it is pointing us to a very, very beautiful an astounding truth about ourselves, one that we are meant to get. We find that Jesus is revealing to us this relationship shared between himself and his Father because he is praying that we, too, might experience it. If we're paying careful attention here, what we discover is that the intimacy and interconnectedness and love shared between God the Father and God the Son does not remain within the Godhead. God in his goodness has extended this love to us, his people. You see, even as Jesus prays for his glorification, he does so knowing that his glory is for our good. Don't miss the fullness of what Jesus is praying for. Jesus knows that the way to his exaltation and thus his glory comes by way of his suffering and dying a shameful death in order that by his sacrifice, God might redeem sinners of his own choosing. His exaltation comes by way of his descent into death. And Jesus willingly accepts this task. For our sake, this is what the prayer reveals to us. He desires to accomplish this work that's been given to him by his father. And he's asking the father to bring him through his suffering and death that his sacrifice might be effective in accomplishing its goal, the salvation of sinners. And this prayer is revealing that the father has been pleased to receive glory in offering up his son to death for the atonement of sin and raising him to new life in order to definitively conquer death. Dearly beloved, do you understand God who is love has not willed to keep his love to himself. Instead, out of the overflow of his heart, God has chosen to love us miserable sinners though we are who are utterly undeserving of such love and he has done it at great cost to himself this is why jesus prays in verse 19 and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth jesus is setting himself apart here for this sacrificial work on calvary knowing that his sacrifice, that by his sacrifice, the unrighteous will be made righteous in him. As 2 Corinthians 5 states, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Why is this so important? Because God loves righteousness. This is what scripture tells us. We find this especially in the Psalm. Psalm 33 states, he loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 45 states, you, meaning the Lord, have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And because God is righteous, as Psalm 11 states, this means that there is a love shared within the very being of God for himself. And if God is to share this love with others, then they too have to be made righteous. And this is exactly what God does for us in Jesus Christ. He pours out his wrath against our sin on his son that we might be made righteous in him. So as we move through the prayer and its petitions, God, God's love that he has extended to us becomes clearer and clearer and deeper and deeper. We find that we are God's chosen people in Jesus Christ. His beloved possession given to Jesus out of the world as a gift. Granted saving knowledge of God, sanctified by his word. But this prayer reveals that God has not only held out his love to us in Jesus Christ, he has also drawn us into this love that is shared within the very being of God. Throughout this prayer, we find Jesus repeatedly praying for the unity of his people. Now, it's easy to focus in on this unity of God's people in this prayer. In fact, in my experience, this is probably the most commonly referenced theme in this prayer. But we don't want to miss the foundational reality beneath this unity that's being prayed for, which isn't finally explicitly revealed until verse 23, where Jesus prays this. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Did you hear that? That you loved them even as you loved me. And just so we don't miss it, Jesus prays it again to close the prayer. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The relations between God's people are to rest in and point to the reality of their unity with God. But here it is. The truth that we have been laboring to understand and get at in this prayer, in so much as the Son is loved by the Father, so are we loved by God. In so much as the Son is loved by the Father, so are we loved by God. The Father loves us in the same way He loves His Son. This is why it's been so vital that we seek to recognize the love and unity between Jesus and his father because God brings us into this love and loves us in the same way. As those who are chosen by God and brought into union with his son through his death and resurrection by way of the power of the Holy Spirit, we are drawn into the very heart of God himself, into the intimacy of the Holy Trinity. So while love is not explicitly mentioned here until verse 23, the whole prayer is revolving around this truth that the people of God are enfolded within this love that is shared within the Godhead. 
This is a remarkable truth, dearly beloved. And undoubtedly, Jesus, in praying this before his disciples, wants them to see the relationship shared between him and his father in order that they might get a sense of and come to know the love that God has for them. And this prayer unfolds what this love is going to mean for them. We quickly realize that this, in this prayer that being chosen in Jesus Christ means that we are brought into conflict with the world as we are moved from being like the world to being made not of the world. And so as we consider God's great love for us, we also need to see that God's love for us includes protection over us who are drawn, who, who draw the hatred of the world. And Jesus wants to reassure us of our reassure our hearts of this specifically. So second, this prayer helps us to see that God loves us in a way that is everlasting and without fail. This prayer helps us to see that God loves us in a way that is everlasting and without fail. Jesus prays for his disciples in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. We recognize this word keep from places like Genesis 2, where Adam is placed in the garden to work and keep it. And keep means to protect, to preserve. And this is what Jesus prays his father will do for his disciples, especially in light of the threat of the world that they are still in, but no longer of. But what does it mean to be protected in the name of God? Well, God's name is associated with his character. So Jesus, when he states in verse 6 that he has manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, he is acknowledging that he has revealed God's character to them. This is also what's being said in verse 26. Jesus has made known to those who follow him God's character. So in other words, what he prays for his disciples here is that they would be kept or protected in firm fidelity to the revelation Jesus Christ has mediated to them. He's asking his father to keep his disciples faithful to his commandments, which makes a lot of sense when he then prays in verse 13, for them to have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Stay with me here. We have seen the same language back in chapter 15 where Jesus has instructed his disciples to abide in his love by keeping his commandments. In verse 11 of chapter 15, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are able to abide in God's love as we stay faithful to him and keep his commandments. And as we keep his commandments and abide in his love, we are filled with joy. Joy is a fruit of God's love. And now it becomes clear. This is Jesus' desire. He wants for his people to share his joy, to share his pleasure in God the Father, to share his delight in his kingdom, to share in his victory over the world. It is in God's love that our joy is fulfilled. So Jesus prays that the Father would keep us in that love in order that we might be filled full with his joy. Isn't it wonderful knowing that Jesus isn't just praying for us to know God's love and experience the fruits of it? 
but he's praying specifically for the means whereby that will happen. He's praying for us to be enabled to abide in God's love by keeping his commandments. And we see here then the sufficiency of God's love for us. God wills to provide all that we need, not only for our salvation, but for our enjoyment of him who loves us and gave himself up for us. How amazing it is to know that Jesus desires to share his joy with us and is offering this up as a request before his Father. And I think we need to hear that this morning. Because the joy that we have in Jesus Christ is a joy invincible. It is a joy that supersedes all that life may throw at us. It's a joy that is not destroyed by the hardships of life, even when all the world comes against us. And for the disciples, this meant very real persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. For us in this moment, it means that we have a joy that overcomes even a global pandemic in which we are not only separated from one another and isolated in our homes, but in which we face the threat of illness and even death. Praise God for the reality of his love and the joy it brings and the reminder of it that we have here in Jesus' prayer in John 17. But if I may, let me draw us to another truth about God's name. The name of God is a precious thing to God. What we find in Scripture is that God demonstrates a zeal for his name. We see it again and again throughout the Old Testament that God is committed to upholding the greatness of his name. He chooses Israel because of this. In Jeremiah 13, 11, God states that he made Israel that they might be for me a people a name, a praise, and a glory. It's for, it's for this, the sake of his name that God delivered Israel out of bondage. Exodus 9, 16 states, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. For this purpose, he preserves Israel and brings them through the wilderness and at last into the promised land. Even when his people rebel against him, God does not abandon his people. And it says in 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And then we have this great proclamation in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. We see here then a commitment by God to uphold his name, that it might be great in all the earth. Even as his people proved to be unfaithful, God shows himself to be mighty to save and steadfast in his faithfulness and love. But in Jesus Christ, we find the true Israel, the one who is perfect in righteousness and faithfulness, who upholds the law, who succeeds at every point at which God's people have failed and in whom all of God's promises are fulfilled. And through Jesus Christ, God's character is truly revealed and his name is made great. So we need to connect the dots here. 
I don't think that Jesus is simply praying that God keep those who are in Jesus in firm fidelity to his revelation of God's character. I think he is also appealing to God's great name that we, his people, whom he promised would be saved, will not be forsaken. In other words, God in his love for us has staked his name on us. He has bound up his name with our destiny. God has chosen us in his sovereign love and has acted for the sake of his great name to deliver us from the dominion of the devil and to bring us into his marvelous light in Jesus Christ. And if this is true, then he who began a good work in us, as Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Dearly beloved, I hope that you find assurance in God's love for you at this point. He will not abandon you. If you have been claimed in Jesus Christ, then God has bound you up with his name. And this provides for us a mighty promise. For those who belong to God in Jesus Christ, God is so committed to them that he will not fail them. He will not allow them to be lost to the evil one, just as Jesus did not let any of his disciples be lost to the evil one. God will not fail to bring his children in Jesus Christ into his everlasting kingdom because he will not allow his name to be dishonored. And Jesus prays for this very thing in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And this, friends, is why Paul can confidently say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or pandemic, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor depth, nor height, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the central thrust of this prayer. And so even as we try to make sense of what is happening in the world right now in the midst of this pandemic, even as we live in the midst of great uncertainty, we can be certain of one thing. God loves us with a deep and abiding love. He is caring for us. He desires the best for us. And he has created a way for us in Jesus Christ that we can eternally delight in the safety and security of his loving presence. And for that, we should rejoice and respond in grateful obedience as we seek to share the love of God in Jesus Christ broadly and boldly. And Jesus prays that we would be equipped in every way to do just that, filled with his glory, until at last the world is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise 
Lord, that you have chosen to share your love with us in Jesus Christ, to unfold us into the love that is shared within yourself. So, Lord, we thank you this day for the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. We thank you that by his death we have been washed clean of our sins and by his resurrection we have been raised to new life. So, Lord, help us to experience your love this day. Help us to live in the joy that Jesus has brought to us. And for we pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand and now affirm what we believe using the Heidelberg Catechism, question 26 and 27. Christian, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still holds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is Almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful Father. And what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the Almighty and ever present power of God by which 